with you. If you did not bring your Bible, you can open up the one right in front of you. It's page 559. If you have your Bibles, which I really prefer, so that you can mark it up. If you have your Bibles, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I cannot believe we're at the end of the series. Honestly, I, I don't think I've ever preached a series that I was more sorrowful to end than this one. I, it's profoundly been impactful for my own life. I hope and trust that it has been for you as well. I have absolutely loved this book. Never had I looked at it this deeply before, so it has opened up for me. And while you're opening up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, let me read to you some lyrics from an album that just dropped two weeks ago by Mumford and Sons. You might be familiar with that band. Some of their songs I really wouldn't want you listening to, but most of them are really good. And this one, this album, at least the ones I've listened to, they're almost like worship songs. This is their song called Guiding Light, brand new, and they sing this. Well, I know I had it all on the line, but don't just sit with folded hands and become blind. Because even when there is no star in sight, you'll always be my only guiding light. Relate to my youth while I'm still in awe of you. Discover some new truth that was always wrapped around you. But don't just slip away in the night. Don't just hurl your words from on high. It's a song of worship. The entire song is beautiful. And it's asking for God to be near and to speak clearly and to speak personally. And do you not resonate with that? I mean, Christian, do you not want God? Sometimes you just crave, God, just speak to me. I wish I could see you right now. I know I will one day, but I wish I could see you right now, face to face, and just hear you speak. Do you know that God wants to have a relationship with you? He doesn't want to be stuck in some cosmic White House. He doesn't want to be flying around the skies in a divine Air Force One. He wants to be down in your life, walking you through this crazy, confusing, difficult world. Do you really know? I mean, I'm really asking you sincerely. Do you truly know that God wants a relationship with you? I didn't invert that for a reason. I didn't ask you if you knew that God wants you to have a relationship with him. He takes the initiative. He's done everything you need. And he is beckoning you. And I'm going to tell you right now, in a group this size, I'm pretty sure there's some here who do not yet have that relationship. He wants it. He wants you. And he gave his life to provide a way for you. And he... And he to live this life together. He wants to live this life together with you. And Solomon drives us to this very conclusion with what one person said about chapter 12, the section that we're looking at. It's the rudder that steers the ship. Well, we've got several points. This is a meaty sermon. This is a really deep, a little bit deeper message, but I think it's going to be very relevant. So let me get right to it. Here's the first point. I really want you to try to remind yourself of this. God's word is a gift for us. Now, I want you to hear that again because I want you to consider this really with a perspective that I'm trying to shape in you from the words of Solomon. God's word, the Bible, the scriptures, it's a gift for you. Besides being wise, verse 9, 
The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So Solomon's a preaching. By the way, Ecclesiastes, I've told you this at the beginning of the, the sermon series, he's just preaching messages. What you see in Ecclesiastes is the compilation of his sermons to the entire world. And he's been preaching and he's been teaching people in Israel and people out of Israel. This is why he uses the name God rather than Yahweh, Lord. He uses God because that's the name that has that the entire world has access to. And he's not a preacher. And by the way, I hope you hear this because if you're a preacher one day, if you're a teacher in God's word, of God's word, you really need to hear this. He didn't just stand up and speak extemporaneously. You know what that means? It means very little preparation to no preparation. Just going to speak what comes out of your heart. He did not do that. You should not do that. And when preachers do this, it's often, honestly, because they became too lazy or too busy to prepare. You know, I've mentioned this years ago that I have a recurring nightmare. It's really not a pleasant one. It's almost always the same theme. It's me in church, and the time is coming for me to preach, and I, can't, I either can't find my notes or I can't find my Bible, or I know I'm not ready. I, I wake up from it, and I, every single time I go, God, thank you that that was just a dream, and I redouble my effort to be prepared. See, Solomon is carefully organizing words of delight, verse 10, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And when you think of delight, it means pleasure, it means high value, something that is seriously valuable. And that describes Ecclesiastes very well. In fact, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is of the highest value. Why? Because what Solomon preached is the words of truth. Now there's a saying that you can't jump over too quickly. That means that this is inspired from God. This is why it's in the canon of the Bible. It's inspired from God, and it was inspired from Jesus, who is the truth. Remember what he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Any inspired word is coming from Jesus, the word of God. Did you know that? That he's called the word of God. Now, really, the one who wrote the Bible is Jesus, who sent the Spirit to speak his words through men from Genesis to Revelation. They are the root words of truth. And they have the power to set you free from life and death. Now, I'm going to do a little test for you. It's not much of one. It's more of a question. You ever been to a church where sermon after sermon is story time? It's maybe a quick glance at a verse. And then it's the preacher waxing eloquent with his own thoughts for the rest of the message. I'm going to tell you right now, if you find your way to a church like that, you will be like the frog in the boiling water. You will not even know that your soul is starving if you're there long enough. In fact, you won't know until you stumble into a church that is preaching the Bible, that is preaching the depths of the Word of God, and all of a sudden your soul opens up and you realize it's emaciated, it's starving, it's hungry, and this is a meal that you can't wait to get there the next week for. That's the power of the Word of God. And if you're at a church that doesn't preach it, it will actually sicken your soul. 
See, Ecclesiastes is alive and active. And like all God's word, it is exceedingly powerful. And Solomon took great care to preach it well. But then we're going to go quickly to point number two. God's word is a help for us. Now what you're going to see quickly is the first three points of this message are all about God's word. Because God's word is going to make our final point a reality. So God's word is a help for us. Verse 10. The words of the wise are like goads. Now, I want you to be honest, super honest. I'm going to look up in the balcony as well. When's the last time somebody here used the word goad in a sentence? One. I know her. She's a bit odd. Who else? Okay, not too many if just maybe one. We don't use this word very often unless we're manipulative people. And then we're functioning with this word because we goad people into doing what we want them to do. But a goad was used for cattle. It was used for sheep. It was a pole with a sharpened end, usually a somewhat blunted nail on the end of it. It wasn't going to pierce the animal, but it was going to prick them, and it was going to motivate them. It was going to get them moving. It was painful. It was meant to correct an animal or to steer an animal or to get an animal moving. You see, God's word, Solomon is saying, can be painful, especially when it needs to correct or convict you. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. This one, do not raise your hand. This is one we call rhetorical. It's just you think, and then you answer it in your mind. When's the last time you were convicted by God's word? When's the last time that God's word pricked you? Now, I'm going to tell you, if you're in God's word regularly, you're going to experience this often. This is a gift. This is grace, actually. And the word of God's purpose is to keep you moving on the path of wisdom. It's getting you to stay on the path of wisdom. And there's only one other path you could get on, according to Proverbs. It's either the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. And we all begin to migrate. We begin to get off that path of wisdom. We begin to step towards or on the path of folly or foolishness. And here comes God's word. It pricks, it convicts to move his back. But Solomon used a second analogy, and that is one of nails. And there's a lot of implications for this. I'm going to read that to you again in verse 10. The words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. There's a lot of analogies here, a lot of implications, rather. When you're often in God's word, and I, I'm going to assume for a moment that you are, because we, we want to be a church where we are often and deeply in God's word. Why? Because then God's word is deeply in you. And when God's word is in you, you're going to live the way that God wants. You're going to be righteous. You're going to live out God's expectations. But Solomon uses this analogy of nails because God's word can become fixed in your mind. And it's easily retrievable by the spirit of God. Did you ever think of it like that? This is actually one of the greatest things I've ever learned as a pastor. And nobody ever taught me this, so it was a bit of a surprise, that the more I was in God's word and I'm sitting down to counsel somebody, or I'm sitting down to teach, then all of a sudden, one after another, the verses are just coming to mind. In the middle of counseling, in the middle of teaching, in the middle of a conversation, 
Why? Because God's word's in my heart, and it's in your heart, and the Spirit of God can retrieve it. He doesn't really often, if ever, take a word that you've never even studied and plop it into your mind. He takes the word that you are studying, and he brings it back to mind exactly when you need to have it. Now, if you've not ever experienced that, likely the reason is you're not in God's word. And that's something that is easily remedied. It becomes fixed in your mind. These nails were also hammered into the poles of their homes, and they would hang their cloaks, and they would hang their pots and baskets on them. And Solomon's saying you can pin your hopes to Christ because of the faithfulness of his word. His word will never fail. It's infallible. It will never pass away. It is faithful to the end. It will hold up the weight of your struggles, your questions, even your doubts. You know, I have a friend that would often come to me and ask my opinion on a matter. And I would say to him all the time, I said, I could give you my opinion, and if you come in to talk to me, you're often going to hear me do this. My opinion is extremely open to error. It just is. Honestly, yours is as well. My opinion, you don't really want my opinion. What you want is the word of God. And if you come to me for counsel, if you come to me with a life situation, I'm going to very much only point you to the word of God. And if I give you an opinion, I'm going to tell you, you know what, be careful with this. This is my opinion, but I, this is what I think. But let's go to the word of God. Let's find what God says. Well, my friend would do that to me. And then when I would tell, tell him to go to the word of God, he would then go to somebody else then and ask for their opinion and another person and another person. And I kept saying to him, the word of God is enough. Let God give you his opinion and let him do it straight from him to you. You know what you're getting right now, even as you're listening to this sermon? You're getting, hopefully, God speaking through me to you. But you know what's even better than that? It's when God speaks straight to your own heart through here, through his word. There is nothing, nothing better than that. You come out of a time where God speaks to your soul through his word, and you come out loving God more. You're probably not going to do that coming away from my sermons. God's word are like nails firmly fixed. And they anchor us in the storms of life that we go through. And the scriptures help us mature. They help us grow spiritually, Ephesians 4.14. Why, uh, why do we want to be in the word of God? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. How do you get anchored in life so that you're not double-minded, that you're not on fire when you leave Saturday or Sunday from church, and then by Wednesday, you're just down again spiritually? How do you get off of that up and down? You get into the Word. You let God's Word get into you. You know, I've talked to a lot of people. This is actually very normal. Whose faith flutters like a candle in the storms of life. I know person after person who left the church because they went through a storm in life and they were not in God's word. 
and their faith, if it didn't extinguish, it fluttered mightily. Well, listen, this was Solomon's struggle. You cannot possibly read Ecclesiastes and not sense and feel the incredible struggle that Solomon's having in his faith. He doesn't understand why do good people suffer? Why are evil people prospering? God, where are you? It doesn't make sense. Yet his conclusion is that this life under the sun, in this world, it's under a curse. It's tainted by sin, yet God is on his throne. And by the end of the book, his faith is a roaring flame because he knew all the words of Scripture, look what it says in verse 11, are given by one shepherd. You know who that one shepherd is? It's a reason it's titled in all, or capitalized rather, in all modern translations. It's Jesus. It's a title for Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd of our souls. He prods us into action through the word. He fixes our hope upon him. And as we regularly come to the scriptures, trusting that God delights to speak with his children, we're not going to come away disappointed. A very, very simple little thing yesterday. This is deer season. Gun season starts on Monday. I'm a hunter. And I have one knife. I've not been able to get a deer yet this season because I can't find my knife. I mean, what am I going to do with a deer if I get it and gnaw on it? So I've been trying to find the knife. And I've been praying finally. I said, Lord, I'm not buying another knife. Would you please help me to find that thing? I lay back in my recliner. No, I didn't go into the lotus position. I didn't meditate. I just simply said, Lord, which is popping into my head where that thing is. And all of a sudden, I've checked everywhere that I know to go. And all of a sudden, the glove compartment of my truck. Did you look there? He didn't speak audibly. I just thought of the glove compartment of my truck. I pop up from the recliner, I go out there, and there is my knife in the glove compartment of my truck. Listen, do you think that that's an accident? Are you not like I am? I see that as a gift from my Heavenly Father. And I see Him do things like this constantly. He loves to do things like this. Why? Because He loves us, and He wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to walk through this twisted, crazy world with us, even when we lose our hunting knives. He cares. But Solomon goes on, God's word is sufficient for us. It's sufficient. Verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Now, Christian, there's really two things that I'm really, really wanting you to get out of this message. If you get something else, that's fantastic. Here's the first. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Everybody in school, high school, or college, this is not permission from God to quit studying. Okay, that's not what he's saying. The focus is on the earlier part of the verse. There's never going to be an end to people telling you the secrets to life. And what they're going to do is this, and if you can look up here for just a moment, all these books and all these speakers and all of these lecturers that you're inundated with and I'm inundated with and we hear our great books and you've got to go hear this person speak, they're all going to do this little balance act with the Word of God. And there's something that I've determined to never do in my life, and that is let any person's book or lectures or messages get higher in authority than God's word. I will not ever do that. 
And some call me antiquated and some call me stuck in the past. You know what? I'm in the word and I'm stuck there. And I don't want to get unstuck. This is the authority and it must be greater than any book you're ever going to read off the shelf of any book or any store. This past Wednesday when I was writing this portion of the sermon, it was 9.45, 9.42 actually in the morning. I got onto a website. I actually put the link into my uh, sermon notes, you can see it online. By this point in the year, from last Wednesday, 942, 2,335,664 books had been published in 2018. You think Solomon knows what he's talking about? There's always been a writing of a lot of books. There's always been a new and exciting philosophy there's always been the latest greatest craze and yet the word of god endures like none other it is the word of god and it is infallible c.s lewis in his book called the great divorce makes the claim that the gates of hell are locked from the inside you ever heard that before the gates of hell are locked from the inside he means that the citizens in hell will never ever trust exclusively in God's word. How ironic that even in Jesus' teachings, with the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man can only ask him, Jesus will you, or Abraham, will you send him over to give a little bit of water to my tongue? He never once asked to get out. Because if the only way out of hell were to embrace the truth of God as divinely authoritative, even people in hell suffering are going to stay there. God's word is divine. It is the greatest authority. So Solomon tells us, don't trust or put your confidence in anything above the scriptures. And if God's word will not satisfy, if you will not trust it, if you do turn to another's counsel as your greatest authority, your, your search is never going to end and your soul will be perpetually exhausted. God's word is enough and it needs no help. Do you realize that all of that that Solomon just said was to lead you to one final thought? The final word, so to speak. And it's this in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, I really get, I truly do. I get why we cringe when we talk about the fear of God. You know, when I was a little boy, it was 1972, I think, that Hal Lindsey released his book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And my dad loved that book, and the church that I grew up in loved that book. And everybody, every church was abuzz with the rapture and how God was going to send Jesus and get the church out of here because the Russians are going to blow up everybody. That's what everybody was thinking in the 70s. I was six years old when that book came out. And our church showed a movie. And at the end of the movie were the Christians that missed the rapture. Actually, they weren't Christians. They were people in the church who weren't Christians. They missed the rapture. And here comes the helicopters of the Russians to get them and kill them. That's how the movie ended. 
Shortly after that, this is, I'm not even making this up. I got home from Sunday. I'm a little boy. Sunday afternoon, I took a nap, and I woke up, and I couldn't find anybody in the house. And I started crying in terror. I thought the rapture came, and Jesus didn't take me. That was terrifying. That was terrifying. That's kind of what we bleed into almost usually when we talk about fearing God. That terror fear. That's really not what it is. And I want to really correct it. And actually the rest of this message is the second most important thing I'm going to tell you. It's the deepest I've ever gone in teaching with, any, with this church in the fear of God. And I hope you profit from it. It has no connection to fear of God whatsoever of being terrified of God. Now some of you had horribly horribly strict parents and perhaps an abusive father and you you really can't help but put a little of that into this phrase but you got to get it out because this is not what it's talking about he's not god isn't he's not like a criminal that forces you to lock the doors at night he's not that snarling dog behind the door that you're about to knock on he doesn't, he doesn't elicit from his children that kind of fear. He isn't like that person that puts you on eggshells. Do you have somebody in your life like that? It takes the least little thing to set them off. He doesn't have his hands on the keys waiting to turn them and nuke your life with calamity. This is not what it means to fear God. Yet the entire book of Ecclesiastes, it's answering the question, what does it mean to fear God? Everything in Ecclesiastes leads towards this conclusive thought. So let me unpack it. You ready? I hope you profit from this. To fear God is to orient your life around him. It's to reprioritize your life around God. It's not, not I hear this, all right? It's not to fit God into your life as just another part of your life or aspect of your life, it's to actually adjust your life to fit into his. That is incredibly different. It's not to ask God to fit into your life, it's to respond to God by fitting into his life. Which means a systemic overhaul eventually. It is to continually throughout the day be asking, is God pleased with my actions? Are you asking that now? If you're going to learn, really learn to grow in fearing God, you begin to subconsciously wonder, is this pleasing God? My words that I just said, did that please God? My attitude that I have right now, is it pleasing God? Fearing God is to ask him for his opinion before making a weighty decision. It's to seek his counsel from his words so that you can understand what that opinion is. Listen, don't just ethereally get on your knees and say, God, I need your opinion. He's going to tell you, all right, I'll give it to you. Get your Bible open because that's when I'm, speak that's when I'm speaking to you. So if you want the wisdom of God, if you want the opinion of God, well, listen, Christian, you've got to be in the word of God. If you're not in the word of God, don't be surprised if you're not hearing him speak. But we're not even at the center of it yet. We're just nibbling around the edges of what it means to fear God. Let's go a little bit more around the circle. I'm going to get you to the core in a minute. To fear God keeps in mind that he is the true means of our satisfaction. By the way, 
every sin you will ever commit, every sin that I will ever commit, is going to tell you a lie that this, what you're pursuing, will give you more satisfaction than God. That is true in every single sin. You graduate from high school with your diploma and perhaps enroll in college. Why? Why do you do that? What's your motive? What's your motivation? Is it because you want to get a college degree, believing it will open a door to a good job? Why do you want a good job? What's your motivation? Is it because a good job will provide an income so that you can enjoy life and support a family? That's not a bad motivation. But listen, you've got to get to the motivation level. To fear God is really to recognize that the true end game of all of our satisfaction of our soul, it's to be in a relationship with God, loved by him and loving him. That's the, that's the entire end game. I have a friend who recently, I'm very close with him, very young man, in his 20s, early 20s. He broke up with his girlfriend. They've been dating for a long time. You know what? He's been miserable ever since. He just reached out to me and talked to me about this. And he's, it's not, his misery is not because he's without a girlfriend. He's a very good-looking guy. He could get a girlfriend very easily. He has girls giving him their numbers, by the way. That never happened when I was a kid. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I I wish it happened when I was a kid. I don't even know why I'm telling you that. He doesn't have a a girlfriend. He's not miserable, by the way, because he doesn't have a girlfriend. It's because he doesn't have her. He realized that he made a mistake, that she was perfect for him. You see, Augustine said to God way back in the 300 or 400 AD, you made made us for yourself. God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. So to fear God is to acknowledge this and worship the one that you were made for. Listen, Christian, it's when you realize fundamentally that you were made for God, for his pleasure, and he gains his pleasure not in doing bad things to you and making you scared of him. He gains no pleasure in that. He gains his pleasure when you love him, when he can walk with you, when he can speak with you and you can speak with him. It's never a grudging, resigned worship to worship God. It's a glad worship that puts our souls to rest and allows us to finally live the way we were designed to live. You know, last Monday at Riverside, this was really, really interesting. They were worshiping up here, singing songs about Jesus. And there was a lady there, and I'm absolutely certain she's not a Christian. She had never been there before. That's not how I know that. It was in the subsequent conversation I had with her. But she came to me and she said these words to me. I was actually caught off guard. I rarely hear this so blatantly. She said, this felt really good to be here tonight. Do you know what she's really saying? She's getting a little bit of a glimpse, very little It's behind a veil. She doesn't see it all. She's got a glimpse that she was built, created, meant to worship God. And she got a taste of what her soul is thirsting for. And it's just an appetizer of what awaits her if she were going to come to Jesus for salvation. She just sipped at it. 
Friends, Ecclesiastes is all about misplaced affections. It's trying to find satisfaction to your soul in anything in this life under the sun. And it's failure after failure after failure until you get to chapter 5 in worship and you find your way to chapter 12 in fearing God. And Solomon is pounding home the truth that God wants you to enjoy life, but it is only possible when you seek that life from him. And it leads us to the very core of what it means to fear God. Ready? This is absolutely the most important part. Fearing God most beautifully, seriously, incredibly simply, means to trust God and obey him. That's really what it means. When your mind comes to a passage of the scriptures, when he's talking to his children to fear him, can you transliterate that in your mind and just say he's calling you to trust him and obey him? That's really what it is. When I was homesick at college, this is before cell phones, nobody even had them. There was no greater anticipation than every day going to the campus post office hoping for a letter from my friends back home. Every day. I remember getting one from my best friend and I was so caught up in reading it that I kept walking back to my dorm and I'm reading this. I actually walked right through the middle of the Liberty University quarterback receiver squad practice. I almost got tackled. I'm not kidding you. I'm not making, I've never seen reaction time like that receiver who was one yard from hitting me at full speed and somehow missed me. I'm going, man, no wonder I don't play football. <laughs> That's how engrossed in that letter I was. And I would reread those letters dozens of times. Why? They were my lifeline in a very difficult time of my life. I even kept those letters for years. They're my best friends. These are the people that I love. You see, when you really love someone, I mean, does this not resonate with you? You want to be with them. You want to hear from them. You put a premium not only on their advice, but on the connection you have through their words. Christian, do you understand that it's the same way with God and it reveals in you your fear of him when you so hunger for his words that it becomes a lifeline for your life and you begin to trust him and obey him even when he's asking for something difficult. You long to look in his word. Why? Because he's going to tell you something. He wants to speak personally with you. That you love to respond to what he says. You know nothing can satisfy you more than doing what God wants you to do. You cannot wait to write your return letter through prayer. And it becomes as natural as a conversation with your best friend. That you know nothing in your life that you cannot trust him with. There's nothing that you cannot trust him with. Your confidence moves you to turn to Christ in faith for the big Big in the little things in life. See, to fear God, friends, it's very simple. It just means to be friends with a God of the universe. It's to have the omnipotent Lord's ear, his loving company, free access to him at all times. And what's the result of fearing God? You no longer worry that he sees sin in your life. I mean, can you imagine that? You invite him to reveal it. 
God, search me, David said. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Why so that you can confess it? Because you know that that sin produces an awkward distance between you and God, just like it does with people that you love. It is not terrifying to read verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Those words to the Christian who fears God are comforting. Do you know why they're comforting? Because that right there, the fact that God will judge, tells you that evil is going to be called to account. It's not going to have its way any longer. The wicked are going to receive their due. Justice will finally be given. Why? Because God will judge all. And the good that you've done, Christian brother and sister, is going to be recognized by God. And you're going to be rewarded in all the wrong that you have done. It will never be admitted as evidence. Why? Because Jesus Christ atoned for it. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Fear God, for this is the whole duty of man, Solomon says. That's not meaning the duty of cleaning your bedroom or doing the dishes or finishing your report at work by Friday afternoon. That's all drudgery. That's not what it means. The whole duty of man is Solomon saying, this is what life is all about. And you sum up the entire life with this. Fear God. Trust him. Love him. He wants a relationship with you. Love the words of the one shepherd. The word of God will build the fear of God in your life. Don't put greater confidence in anyone else's words. You can anchor your life to God's word. And when you do, you will find that even in this vain, brief, twisted, crazy world, your soul is alive and you're enjoying life and you know the best is yet to come. Amen. I hope you enjoyed Ecclesiastes. Can I tell you really quickly before I close, maybe an encouragement to you. I, it occurred to me, actually all the way through this sermon series, that it's like going to an apple orchard and working your way down the row, thinking that you got all the apples out of the tree, and then once you get a little bit different angle, you can still see some more inside and up top. There's so much more in Ecclesiastes that I did not, I just wasn't able to bring to you why I'm not ready for it. But you might be. So go back through, study this book, and let God open it back up for you again. It will change your life. Amen? Let's pray.